This morning, as we uh, continue our journey through various biblical leadership principles using the Leadership Bible, I wanted to talk about um, the principle of that we call long-range planning. And uh, I want you to think in terms of this as a skill for our lives. We all know about planning, but uh, I want to get, look at it from a biblical perspective, a biblical angle. And the text I want us to look at is Genesis 3.15. And the reason why I want us to look at Genesis 3.15, because what we have here is an exploration of, uh, or an intimation. This is the first messianic prophecy all the way back in the garden at the fall. The very first messianic prophecy is found that early. And it is a prediction of what's going to take place concerning um, the seed of the woman and uh, the um, offspring of the, of the serpent. After the fall in Genesis 3, after the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, which is interesting, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, right there. And temptation always, ever since, has been along those three, those three lines. The three temptations of Jesus, by the way, are also corresponded to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, if you wanted to make a check. And you'll see that the, where the first Adam fell, the second uh, overcame. Because uh, you recall then that um, she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The, who was with her there is an important phrase because uh, Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Silence of Adam. He didn't say a word. He just went along with it, you see. He was with her. And he didn't say a word. He didn't take his, his responsible position. He just played along with it. As a result of this, this awful fall and the realization that all had gone astray and all had gone awry, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of what, that I commanded you not to eat from? So they were aware of their naked condition. Remember, they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, and God himself is the one who had to cover them up, but with the skins of, a, of an animal. Consequently, the first sacrifice took place, and God had to make it. So it's a, it's a portrait even there, an intimation of that blood is required in order to cover us from our sins, even that early. In this text... Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? Because it's intriguing here that he first turns to Adam and then to the, to, to the woman. What we have here is uh, her response. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So those, it, it, he was putting it off. Adam put it off to the woman. Then she put it off to the serpent. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock. And all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. So you're going to have this image of the offspring of the woman, the, the human seed and his. He will crush your head. That's a mortal blow. And you will strike his heel. That's the blow that took place at the crucifixion. So that Satan... It was predicted that he would be successful in striking the heel of the offspring of the woman. And indeed, he was crucified, but it wasn't mortal. It, yes, he died, but he came to life again, so it wasn't permanent. Whereas Jesus has delivered a mortal blow to Satan, and he's living only on borrowed time. I saw Satan falling from heaven as lightning. And so there's an image here of Jesus' uh, uh, ultimate victory over this. What we have here is a portrait of the future. 
after this after their sin god looks well beyond that and already says i have a plan that i have uh, instituted and in this plan there's going to be enmity or hostility between satan and the future offspring of eve which is ultimately going to be fulfilled in christ satan would strike his heel as i say the painful death of christ on the cross but that's not the end of the story so we have here a, a portrait of how Satan would appear to have won when Jesus died on the cross. And so it would have appeared on the short-term perspective. But then there's a longer perspective. Satan would be the ultimate loser in the spiritual battle. And this anticipates a cosmic warfare in which we all participate. And in this cosmic warfare, we see that ultimately God's victory will be over all the forces of evil. And that these mighty forces that were unleashed will ultimately be uh, defeated by God, who already here unveils a plan that would unfold thousands of years later on a cross outside of Jerusalem. As the ultimate leader, God made certain that the direction of the history of the human race was headed toward our salvation. So you have this marvelous picture here of how God is, in fact, considering and has considered the choices of his people and has created a plan that would be consistent with his sovereign purposes. We have a verse of this uh, text, Proverbs 4. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. So this, this is a key theme for us to keep our eyes on the path ahead and to be long-term planners. Let's look at long-term planning, first of all, in terms of who God is. And I'd invite you to turn to Isaiah 37, uh, verse 26. God is ultimately the the, uh, supreme long-term planner because his purposes encompass the past from the future, the eternity uh, to eternity, and extend every component of his dominion. And then that from a short-range perspective, things may seem to be out of control. But from a long-term point of view, He is working all things together so that there'll be an ultimate consummation. In Isaiah 37, we have a text here in this transitional section in the book of Isaiah where there's a story of Sennacherib who threatens to um, overthrow Jerusalem, this Assyrian king, and how Jerusalem's deliverance is foretold uh, to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is affirmed and told that because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word the Lord has spoken against him, because they were surrounded by 185,000 Assyrians, and uh, the city was under siege, and it would be impossible, it would seem, for any way that they could be delivered from such a siege. One night, in one night, God overcame that army. They wiped them out, and... Um, The story is found in this text. But the prophecy is this. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee. Who is it that you have insulted and blasphemed? Because he was blaspheming the Lord God, saying, the gods of these other cities didn't deliver them, and neither will your God deliver you. So it was a mock against the the living God of Israel. So the prophetic oracle says, against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you have heaped insults on the Lord, and you have said, With my many chariots I have ascended the heights of the mountains, the utmost heights of Lebanon. I have cut down its tallest cedars, the choicest of its pines. I have reached its remotest heights, the finest of its forests. 
I have dug wells in foreign lands and drunk water there. With the soles of my feet, I have dried up all the streams of Egypt. This is an image of their boasting. Then God's response, have you not heard? Long ago I planned it, or ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Their people drained of power, dismayed, and put to shame. They're like plants in the field. And he goes on to, to tell them, I know where you stay and when you come and go and how you rage against me. Because you rage against me and because of your insolence has reached my ears, I'll put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth. I'll make you return by the way you came. And so he is saying, I'm the one who ordained that you would have this authority, this temporal authority, but that only for a season. And now I'm, I'm going to be bringing you to an end, and a swift end indeed. So the point here is that long ago, this, the verse I want you to focus in is verse 26. Have you not heard, long ago I ordained it, in days of old I planned it. I brought it to pass, and I used you like the potter would shape the clay, so I used you. You boasted yourself against me, but your days are about to end. So this is a portrait then of God's sovereign and active involvement in the affairs of people and in the affairs of nations. It's not capricious, it's not reactive, but it's purposeful and deliberate. And this reminds us, of course, again, about the way he works, not only in the days of old, but even in our own times, where we realize that God's not capricious. And though people will revile him and raise their fists against him and mock and suppose they're autonomous, ultimately God has his purposes. He raises up kings, he deposes them. That he has an, a long-range plan in which we can take great confidence. His timing is perfect, and his purpose can never be thwarted. It says in Proverbs 16:4, the Lord works out everything for his own ends, even the wicked for a day of disaster. In Isaiah 46, 10, it says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and all that I uh, please I will do. That is the Lord, and nothing will thwart his ultimate intentions. Therefore, we, if we were prudent, we would align ourselves with him, because if we seek to defy him, who has defied him without harm? All of us in our own ways, in our rebellious ways, in acts of disobedience, have sought to defy him. It's always been to our detriment. You can never pitch battle against God and suppose that you're going to win. It's a deceptive strategy. And as I often say, the reason why we suppose that God, that we can defeat him, is either because we believe he's not in control, or we think that he really doesn't love us enough to want what's best for us. The fact is, the scriptures invite us to see that only he's in control. And secondly, whenever he invites us to do that which is right, whatever he invites us to do, to obey, to, to uh, follow, is always in the long run for our good. And whatever he tells us to avoid is always in the long run that would have harmed us. We know this, and we actually have a perfect track record. I, I've gone on record with you before as saying, since 1967, when I came to know Christ, I have a perfect track record. I've always lived to regret the things that I disobeyed in the times of disobedience. Every time, every time. In the long run, I always, you know, whenever you're tempted, though, you think of a short-term pleasure or you fantasize about the way you think things might work out, but you're deceiving yourselves. I can also affirm that every time I have chosen to obey him, I've always been happy I did, without exception. So there's a perfect track record. That means that at the present tense, when I'm being tempted, it should be a no-brainer. 
<laughs> but it isn't a no-brainer. We're still dumb enough to be, oh, let's do it again. Again, nobody at the beginning of the day says, I think I'll wake up when they wake up this morning. I know today's a good day to shoot myself in the foot. Yeah, that's what I believe I'll do. I think I'll do something really stupid. Uh, nobody says they're going to do that. But how often have we looked back at the end of the day and said, how could I have done such a stupid thing? I can't believe it. See, we're both geniuses and we're idiots at the same time. That's just the reality of it. <laughs> it's amazing human nature. And so we find ourselves foolish if we do not consult God with our plans. And again, as business people, we are foolish enough to suppose that we have autonomy in that arena. We may not be able to control other areas of our lives, but we suppose that when it comes to business, we can handle that. After all, what does God know about business? <laughs> we suppose. That is to uh, move in a direction of complete folly and shame because really he's the ultimate uh, planner and he has his plans work out. So we'd be very prudent, wouldn't we, to take every component of our life, especially our business and our professional lives, and to submit them to God's uh, unchanging purposes. I want you to notice something about the way he plans things, about the uh, timing of, of, his, uh, of things. Somebody read Galatians chapter 4. Verse 4. It's an interesting little verse. It's, it's um, another revelation. And at first you might say, what's the import of this verse? Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, talks about God's timing. Because he does the right thing at the right time and in the right way. But when the fullness of the time came, that's when he sent forth his son. What does that mean, the fullness of the time? He chose just the critical moment in history for the Incarnation. He was shaping and preparing a people, moving them through their painful experiences, but bringing them to a position where the Messianic line now could be uh, fulfilled and Messiah could be birthed and the Incarnation would take place. I want you to consider just a few things. You could do a whole teaching on this, but just a few thoughts about the fullness of the time. By the first century, the Roman Empire had brought a universal peace. It was called the Pax Romanum, the Peace of Rome. It was a unique peace that had not been known in the world beforehand. Secondly, it brought about a common language, not just Latin, but Koine Greek. Greek was the, common Greek was the language of commerce and of trade in the Roman Empire. But third, it brought about the best roads that the world had ever seen. Roads on which the good news of the gospel would be carried. In fact, Roman roads are so good that they're still being used in some parts of Europe and, and parts of England. That They're the best roads that were ever made before or since. If you studied how they were made, it was incredible the way they laid the foundation for them and did things right. No corners were cut. So they created and crafted these roads. And also the system of, the, of peace and the system of government was such that you did not have to fear, as you did in days earlier, of brigands and highwaymen on the, on the road. So you had uh, the peace of Rome that made that possible. In addition, there were political preparations, spiritual preparations. The gods of Greece and Rome were dead or dying, and there was a spiritual vacuum at the time when Christ came. There were economic and social conditions ideally suited to the rapid spread of this message of hope and new life in Christ. God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. So he shapes and waits to the right moment so that your wisdom in planning is not just to do the right thing, but to do it in the right time and in the right way. 
That's where wisdom comes in, where all three of those converge together. The right action in the right time and in the right way. That's where wisdom comes in. And so we follow, when we follow God and pursue his purposes, we see that we can be men of wisdom as well. Even the crucifixion was part of God's long-range planning. Turn to Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, and you see this isn't some accident. This didn't come out of the blue. As we saw in Genesis 3, that actual crucifixion was anticipated all the way back in the garden before they were expelled from the garden. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28. For truly in this city there are gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Notice that he gathered together. What is it? Who were the people he gathered <clears throat> together there? Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel. Jesus wasn't crucified by, just by the Jews. It was, a, it was the Jews and the Gentiles. Herod, Pontius Pilate, they were all involved. And to do whatever your plan pre- prepared, you actually predestined that these things would occur. So that there, this was no accident. This was no plan B. God doesn't have a plan B. He doesn't need one. He transcends time. And so God, unlike us, we see time as a linear movement and progression from A to B and C and D. God who transcends time can see them all in one present glance. And he can work in time, but still is not bound by its uh, limitations. So I see here a portrait of one who can truly plan, and we'd be wise to align ourselves with him. I would also have you turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 6 to speak about how we begin, begin to be planners. In Proverbs chapter 6, we have the spontaneity can be valuable and very helpful and creativity and so forth, but you don't leave your life's direction to serendipity and happenstance. That would be a foolish thing to do. Look at Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, where... Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. And let us learn from nature. It has no commander or overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers it, its, its food at harvest. Because the plant and the animal kingdoms offer innumerable examples of long-range planning. Especially in view of the cycles of the seasons, it's remarkable to look at how Nature abounds with animals and insects that store provisions during times of abundance, and then they prepare for times of scarcity. They do instinctively better than what we do as rational beings. In a way, they're smarter than we are. They, got, they figured this one out here. When things are scarce, you know, when things are abundant, you, you, you put aside, and then where well, it's not going to be so good. Amazing, isn't it? We haven't figured this one out yet. <laughs> the wisdom of saving wealth without spending it as soon as we get it to prepare for times of adversity during times of abundance and to maximize opportunities while they last. Joseph was a great example of that. You recall the seven years of, of abundance? And he told them to store up because there were going to be years of famine that would follow. And Paul was also a person who considered the opportunities of the present tense and store up for the future. And he was a long-range planner anticipating his desire to go to Spain by way of Rome. Here's the point. It's so easy to, for us to focus on so much of our attention on our short-term goals and objections that, objectives that we miss out on the long-term view. Living for the long term, living with the end in view is a wise thing to do, both in your business, but also in your life. 
In other words, it's wise for us to take a long view, but it's also the wisest thing we can do in the, at the end of the day is to think of the view in terms of the temporal versus the eternal and to look at your few decades of life and to compare them with, on this planet with your eternal destiny. So you have to ask yourself, to, to what degree have you disciplined yourself to be a long-range range planner, both in, in, in terms of the temporal arena, but also leveraging the temporal for the eternal in your life. And it's a very prudent thing for us to seek that out. I have to say, as I get older, I begin to be more aware that um, you know, I'm, I, I am now moving toward uh, a very, very short uh, time span here. It's always been short. A few decades is all you have, any of us ever get, isn't it? It's all very short. But you, become, you begin to be more aware of it, and you begin to be aware. You don't want to fritter your years, your few years on this, on this earth. How many years do we have left? God only knows. And my point is, but it, it, it isn't 70. <laughs> the, fact, the fact is, for most of us, it's only a handful of years, a handful of decades at most. So it would be wise for us to leverage that and to realize what counts again are going to be people in the Word of God by building those two things that last forever into each other. The tr God's eternal truth into eternal beings. You're investing for the future. You are living for the future. And uh, what you do, how you, how you serve your, your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, your, your, your relatives, your co-workers, all these people really is the way you serve Christ. And so it's to understand that uh, the, what's visible to you is the way you manifest the invisible. It's often easy for us to get so focused on just the invisible that we miss out on. That's how we leverage. If you, if you love me, you'll love the people I love, is the idea. Two other passages, one from Isaiah, again, Isaiah 30, verses 1 to 5. Here's the prophetic oracle against Israel's folly in supposing that they can carry out plans that are independent of God. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their uh, envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. In other words, he's saying, you are leaning on a bruised reed. You're, you're putting your hand on the bruised reed, and it'll go right into your hand. This bruised reed is, is, is Egypt. You suppose that by creating these alliances in defiance of me, that you make plans without consulting me, that you're going to prosper? And so he speaks to the people as a whole. It'll only, I'm going to have to bring you down because of your arrogant suppositions. Again, we need to be people who are wise. We don't know the details of the future, but there's an inevitably a, an element of guesswork because you can never see beyond the now, but woe to that organization whose leaders don't at least project into the future and bring, and I believe, and ultimately bring God into, into the process. There's one thing you and I can take as we consider the future of our organizations, and I mean by your, this your company or your own life, your family, your, where you're heading. They can and must ask themselves and the team members whether their values, the missions, the vision, the mission, the strategic action plan, the projected outcomes are consistent with what God has revealed in his word about ethics and justice. That's, that is something we can do.
Do the plans in your business reflect a dependence upon God? Does the projected use of organizational resources include the development of people? Is there a dedicated attempt to honor the bottom line commitment to shareholders? Does the whole planning document honor God or ignore his existence? That's the issue. So my invitation is for you to do the radical and right thing, to be a person who plans well and brings God into the process. My last text is Romans 15. And in Romans 15, Paul's talking about his own plans where he is pursuing an adaptive and proactive strategy, what Carl Albrecht calls um, futuring in his book, The Northbound Train. And futuring, he talks about, is taking into account the fact that there are uncertain changes, so you need to be adaptive and proactive in your strategies. And uh, the Apostle Paul had no question about his ultimate future. He knew that he'd be with Christ, Philippians 1. But he lacked certainty about his immediate future, And he knew that God had called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That was very clear in Galatians 1. But what he wasn't certain about was how that's going to flesh itself out. So his daily ministry involved a kind of futuring in which he was determined to adapt his strategy and approach to each particular situation, but never compromising his primary mission to be a person who was a man of calling and mission. And so when we future, when we consider the future and adapt and be proactive, Let us always consider the bigger questions. First of all, what's my ultimate mission in life? And then secondly, what is the key principle in my business? It's what um, uh, Jim Collins calls the hedgehog principle in good to great. It's this concept of what do you do with excellence and, and skill? And God can leverage that and use that well. The fox can do many things well, but the hedgehog does one thing that's great. One thing it does, it does great. It folds itself up into this ball with nothing but little prickles coming out, and it's immutable. Rather, not immutable, but it's unassailable by the fox when it does. It doesn't do many things well, but that one thing it does great. So that's the hedgehog principle. What do you do great? The good becomes the enemy of the best, doesn't it? You can fritter away a lot of time doing good things and miss out on the best. So God's desire is for you to leverage your time well, but you'll not do it apart from consulting him. You don't want to be anxious about the future, but at the same time, you don't want to be a person who, who is caught without planning and considering the contingency. So there's a wonderful balance that the scripture says about planning, but not being presumptuous. And there, that's, therein lies the issue. You plan, but then you hold it with a loose grip. If the Lord wills, we will do this or that, James 4 tells us. So there's a, there's a balance.